before I get started this morning, I'll ask two questions. One, did everybody get the notes? If you haven't got the notes, raise your hand and somebody will get them to you. Um, it might help you follow the unfollowable. Second, uh, this let me add a couple of things about our body here before we get started. I'm not sure any is aware, but prayer is needed by a couple of our families. Uh, I know that uh, our executive pastor's wife, Lynn, has uh, had a fall and has got a broken something in her leg in three places and um, needs prayer. Pray for the Howard family, if you would. Also for Rebecca Howard. Do not forget to pray for Rebecca Howard. She still needs our prayers and God's healing touch. Uh, secondly, uh, one of our families, the Galvin family, has said goodbye to Jerry Galvin, who's home to be with the Lord. And uh, they need the comfort of the Lord in this time and the truth of these very things we just sang. Because he lives, we too will live. Jerry's not missing. We know exactly where Jerry is. He's in the presence of Christ. And uh, we can count on the same. So let's just jump in here. Arthur Peter Kreft has told a story about a poor European family who saved money for a long time to finally make a journey and sail to the United States. While they were in their little small room, they were carefully rationing their cheese and bread to make sure they had enough to eat for this many-day journey. Their little boy finally said, I hate cheese sandwiches. If that's all I get on this trip, I'm going to die anyway. And the father, in mercy, says, well, son, here's our last nickel. Why don't you go to the galley and see if you can buy something that you'd like. And so the boy took off and was gone a long time, and the father was concerned. When he finally came back, he goes, what happened? He says, well, did you get your ice cream cone? And he says, no, I had three ice cream cones and a steak dinner. And dad goes, for a nickel? He goes, oh, no. The food here is free. It's included with the ticket. And I think that's us in our Christian life. God has provided everything we need. We want to add stuff. We want to save stuff. We want to interject our own strategy. And so we're eating cheese sandwiches when he has steak. And he's provided steak by his death on the cross. So I just want to share with you today how he has triumphed and has transformed us. He's transformed us personally and triumphed over all that would stand in the way of us knowing Christ. So it's included in the purchase that he made at the cross. Let's just read in Colossians Chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. Now to some, this is a pretty challenging passage, and hopefully we can crack it open and see the treasure inside that God has for us, okay? Verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, 
having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that it contains. Would you do what only you can do this morning and make it come alive to our hearts and our minds? Would your Holy Spirit take over this service and would you speak what you want said and your people hear what they need to hear today? By the power and authority of Christ and in his name we pray, amen. Well, we're going to continue our journey through the book of Colossians, and um, we hear Paul in this passage telling believers maybe some things they've never heard or don't know, that you are transformed. And Paul will go on to describe what's been included in that transformation, in our proverbial ticket that Jesus purchased for us, how our Captain Jesus has triumphed over everything that would separate us from God and our enemies. And why was this important to Paul? I think there are two of the more prevalent threats to the simplicity of the faith and to the Colossian church were, one, the intrusion of the legalistic Jews who were trying to get people to get circumcised and the need for works of the law in addition to what Jesus had done. And secondly, um, there were other things that they were considering like angels, uh, why angels were necessary to make you close to God. And, and Paul wants to destroy their notion of any of this stuff being necessary or wrong. They're both wrong and they're both not necessary. See, today, I think even today in churches, we can be found, churches can be found that have added stuff to the simplicity of Christ. We must be careful never to add anything besides Christ and him crucified and faith in him alone. So let's just jump in. In verse 10, and you know I didn't read that before. That's because it really is the beginning of the sentence, an earlier part of the sentence that we read in verse 11. And I think this is what Paul was trying to describe in verses 11 to 15. He says this, And in him, who's him? Christ, you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Now, the word complete here is full, and so he's saying Christ has made you full, complete, you lack nothing. And I imagine there are some of you sitting here this morning saying, I don't feel complete, I don't feel full, I feel like I lack much, so what's the problem? Our reality doesn't often match the truths of God's word. And I think in, in Scripture, there are many truths that are called positional truths. Let's just look at Ephesians 2.6. In that verse, it says, He sees me as already seated in heavenly places. Did you know that? If you, believer, have put your faith in Christ, you've already arrived. As far as God's concerned, you've already landed. There is nothing that's going to prevent you landing in heaven. You're already seated with Christ. 
Uh, he sees you perfect, right? We heard that, and I appreciate Pastor Todd's words this morning at communion because they fit nicely with what we're saying today. Does God see you perfect in Christ? Yes. Do you feel perfect? No. Why not? Practice is not the same as our position. I mean, perfect. My wife knows, and don't ask. I'm not perfect. I'll never be perfect on this earth. But positionally, before God, the same thing he says about my completeness is I'm seated with him, with Christ in heaven. I'm perfect in his sight, and I lack nothing, which means God has provided me everything that I need for the journey, whether I see it or recognize it or not. Now, what we want to do is look at a couple things here in this passage, how Paul is telling us there's two wonderful ways in which God wants you and I to know how we have been made complete in Christ. You may not see these until he tells you, so let's just jump in. The first one we're going to see is how we've all been receiving, have received a total transformation. We have been changed, and you may not think about it a lot, but the reality is you are not the same creature you once were. It says we've been made new creatures in Christ, so let's jump in and meet the totally transformed you in Christ, okay? Um, in verse 11, it says this, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What in the world, Paul, are you talking about? You are going to tell me how I've been made complete, and then you rant off on circumcision. What is your problem? I mean, half of us are women, right? So that doesn't apply. So what's his point? Well, I think he has two points here, and we're going to talk about what circumcision even means. Why is he talking about that? Well, the first thing is there were a bunch of Jews that were trying to push legalistic, physical rites of circumcision upon the bodies, uh, a body of Christ there at the Colossian church, and he wants to stamp that out. The second reason, though, is he's using it as an illustration of something else. We've all needed a surgery, maybe not one in the flesh, but we've all needed something cut away from our lives. Can you hear what it is? Well, let's read the rest of the verse. It says that Christ, in him, you were also circumcised. So one another reason you don't need to be circumcised physically is you've already received one, and you've got a better one. You've got a more special one. And it says this, not just Gentile believers, but all believers have received a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So this is how we learn why, okay, Gentiles are sitting there listening to Paul saying, I haven't already been circumcised, I'm pretty sure. And then he's saying now, but I'm not talking about physical circumcision, church. I'm talking about the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of... I'm talking about a surgical procedure that only God can do. He's going to cut away from the believer. What? When a person puts faith in Christ, he cuts away the old sin nature. Now, we know that in the early uh, ages of the Israel nation, every Hebrew boy at the eighth day became circumcised to prove that they were a part of Israel. 
but they carried it too far. But there was two beliefs about this. One was that circumcision was all you needed to be right with God. Once you were circumcised, it didn't matter what you did. Once you were circumcised, you were in. Paul's going to address that in a second. The second belief was, no, circumcision is only a symbol of something deeper. And those people who believe that were right. Because we read in uh, Romans 2 that God was never talking about the need to have your flesh cut away. He was looking for something else called an un, a circumcised heart. And what does that mean? Well, in Romans 2, it says physical circumcision is only of value if you keep the law. As soon as you break the law, you might as well not even be circumcised. So it does nothing to save you because he's not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart. So God has never been about the flesh being cut. He's always been in the business of heart transformation. You needed heart surgery. You needed sin surgery. The only way to remove a sinful heart from a fallen sinner is by God's special act. He calls here circumcision. It's just the cutting away, the removal. And what happens? What did that do? Physical circ circumcision has really been what God's doing to cut us away from what? Our own affiliation with Adam. We were in Adam. Our flesh died when he died. Our sinful nature was carried on all through the lines. Our spirit died. We were dead. And God says, through Christ, I have cut that away. It's been removed. And he even accentuated that when he told Paul in Romans, as he spoke about Abraham, he says, remember... The physical rite of circumcision has always only been a symbol. Don't get caught up in the rites. Don't get it caught up in the works. Because Abraham, remember, was justified by faith 14 years before he was physically circumcised. You don't need this. This is totally useless. Don't do it. Well, what's, what is a symbol, by the way? Did you know that this ring does not mean my marriage? Does this, my marriage? No, it's a symbol. My marriage, whether I lost this ring, whether my wife hates me or not if I lost it, but if I lost this ring or it, it gets stolen, am I not married anymore? My marriage is based on my promise to my wife to love, to cherish, to be faithful to, to commit my whole self to her and her to me. This is what that stands for. Similarly, the rite of circumcision was just a symbol of a changed heart. That's what God wanted it to be, but people were turning it into rites. And so when we keep rules, we try to be baptized, we try to be circumcised, we try to do something, we're trying to add works of the law to what Christ has already done, and Paul says, stop it. Don't even let them trick you. They're trying to fool you. In fact, you might even believe what some of the old Jews did is that when I do some of these physical things, it actually puts me in a right standing to God. In fact, you know what? When I stand before God, I'll just say, yeah, but my good deeds outweighed my bad. Or I gave a lot of money to the church, so I'm in, right? 
Don't get a false sense of security from works of the law. It will accomplish you nothing. It's Christ and Christ alone. And what he did to change our heart. Now, this is interesting. The special circumcision, we read in uh, NIV translation, it really kind of adds a little something here. It says, in him, verse 11, you were also circumcised in the putting off of your sinful nature. Hmm. Not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but a circumcision done by Christ. Oh, so this is how it happened. Christ stepped into our life, and he said, look, these guys are dominated by sin. They're slaves to sin. They need to be set free from sin. I'm going to perform this rite of a surgical removal of their sin self, their sin, the old man. It's going to be ripped out of them and cut away. And what does that do? It sets us free from the power of sin. Just what Todd said earlier. We've been set free from the power of sin by this circumcision. You sit here right now, if you're a believer in Christ, set free. So I don't want to hear, I can't help myself. That's not the point. So what happened though? You might say, Tim, if God cut away the sin nature in me or my power of sin, why do I still sin? Good question. Do you know that we've been given a new nature in Christ? The death of Christ on the cross purchased us a new nature. We've been given God's nature. We now want what God wants. We used, we used to hate God. Now we love what we once hated and hate what we once loved. How did that happen? God gave us a new nature. But this nature still lives in, guess what? A body of flesh. And this body of flesh was inherited from Adam too. And it still wants us to do things contrary. Paul struggled with this and wrote about that himself in Romans chapter 7. In verse 15, he says this, For what I am doing, I do not understand. Has any ever been there? Anybody done stuff you thought I'd never do? And you can't understand it because you know you hate it? And you want to do better? Me. I've been here. And what does he say? For I am practicing what I would, what I would, see, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. So no longer, no, I no longer, I am the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Wait a minute. The nature has been, the old man's been ripped out. The need, to, the desire to obey the old man has been forever terminated. We don't have to obey anymore. We've been set free. But do you think he stopped talking? We still live in an old, sinful, decrepit body. Our bodies are a mess. We live in old, sinful bodies. And this body is going to try to get us to contradict the law of God, the thing our heart desires. And God says, don't be surprised that you're going to wrestle with sin for the rest of your physical life. But be of good cheer. Why? Paul tells us in Galatians 5, verse 16, he says, look, walk by the Spirit and you possibly may not carry out the desire of the flesh. Is that what it says? It says, no, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So if you're not walking in the Spirit, you have no shot. Over, overcoming the physical body that wants to have you disobey God's spirit in you. But if you walk in the spirit that he's given you, guess what? You have power 
to say no to sin. You want to say no. Even when you're sinning, you probably want to say no. But God gives us the power to actually say no and actually avoid the sin. Romans 6, 1, yeah. Should we continue to sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Why? Because we've been given a power to overcome it. So here's something else. So we've been transformed by beginning a new nature and ripping out the power of the old nature. But it says we were buried with him in baptism. You read my verses in, in Romans. I appreciate that, uh, Todd. Because having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised up with him through faith, in the working of God. When you and I were saved, Paul's telling us you were baptized into his burial and resurrection. And Paul is not in any way talking about water here. He's not replacing the rite of circumcision with the rite of water baptism. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is we were united. We were put in union with Christ. And when God looks at Christ on the cross, it's as if we were there. And when God... When, when they put Christ in the tomb, it's like we were buried. And when Christ was raised, God sees us as raised. These are tremendous truths. You died already in Christ. Now, I asked the question of the first service, how many times can you die? Well, there's the spiritual death, but physically, how many times can you die? Once. So once you have died in Christ, can you be killed again? No, the debt has been paid. Well, let's look at something else. In Romans chapter 6, Todd read it to us. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, which again is united. Paul is not talking about water baptism in Romans 6 either. He's talking about being united into Jesus Christ, have been united into his death. Therefore, we have been united with him in his burial and his baptism into death so that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we might walk in newness of life. That is incredible truth. And this is past tense, isn't it? We're, are we being united now in a sense to accomplish these things or did they already happen? We were in Christ's death. It's a done deal. We were raised with Christ. It's a done deal. You're not going to change these facts. These facts are true. Now, another, go on. It says, he explains what we read earlier in Colossians. Knowing this, that our old self, our old man, that old sin nature was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be somewhat weakened. Is that what it says? It says, done away with eliminated, wiped out, destroyed, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Sin can no longer master you. No longer. Its power has been forever destroyed on the cross. You've been set free. And that's why, for he who has died is freed from sin. And you might again ask, uh, in what way am I free from sin? Because certainly I continue to sin. And in 1 John 1, 8, it says we all will sin. So how, I been, how have I been freed from sin? Great question again. What Paul's saying is that we have been freed, freed from not only the power of sin, but the consequences of sin. God has given us freedom from sin's consequence. And what's the consequence of sin? 
The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life. Why? Because he has, we have died with him. He died once and we died once with him. Sin can no longer come back and knock on your door and say, you still owe me. You do not. If you're in Christ, that debt's paid forever. Forever. Now, I'm going to get on here. There's more to this because we, as we go to verses 13 and 14, it's tremendous. But we need to move on because you have now been totally transformed. The new you has a new nature, an ability to say no to sin, and you have been made alive in Christ. That's what it says here, right? You were raised up with him. You were made alive because he destroyed sin's claim on your sin debt forever. Now let's move on. It says, you are totally triumphant in Christ. And once again, I would ask you, how triumphant do you feel this morning? Do you feel like you're just knocking them out of the park every day? I mean, everything you touch turns to gold, right? Once again, God has made us triumphant through Christ. Now that means something different than we win every day. What it means, though, is God has given us triumph in three key areas, and we're going to read them in verses 13 to 15. And those are, he has triumph over death, he has triumph over our debt to sin, and he has triumph over our enemies. All things that would oppose our relationship to God. Everything that would oppose us being with God in a relationship of intimacy, Christ has triumphed. And we're going to read about those. So let's go to verse 13. It starts off by saying, when you were dead in your transgressions, your sins, your trespasses. That doesn't sound too good, does it? Um, you, you, we were born dead. You and I, I was dead, you were dead. Now, it doesn't mean you're physically dead. You were born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Your spirit was dead. And how can you have a relationship to God who is spirit if your spirit is dead? You don't. We were in a bad way. And this was the obstacle that Jesus needed to triumph over. He needed to make us alive. Now, Ephesians 2.1 says the same thing. You were dead in your sin. Now, what is being dead? I think we need to understand that. One, you could say certainly it's being separated from God, and that's true. But I think it's another meaning. It means you're totally unable to respond. You have no ability to react. You can't react even to good things. I mean, if I took a $100 bill or a $1,000 bill and I waved it in front of a dead man, do they reach for it? You better say no. We're not watching ghoulies on TV, okay? The answer is no. So no matter if you have a wonderful offer, even like the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ that would forgive all of our sin, make us children of God, and you wonder how come people don't respond? The, the answer is right here. You're dead. Dead people do not respond even to good offers unless something happens. And that's the second half of the verse. He made us alive. But what else? We had another problem. 
At least I did, because I'm a Gentile. And in verse 13, what does it say? You were dead in your transgressions, so I was so bound by my sin and dead to God that I couldn't respond. I had no way out of my predicament. I have no way of climbing out of my own casket. I'm dead. Something else. If that wasn't bad enough, he says this, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that just means, let's say you weren't dead, but you're a Gentile. According to Ephesians 2, it says the formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Even if I, let's say I was a really good Gentile and I thought I was alive, I am separated from Christ because I'm outside of all the truths of God that he gave directly to Israel. I'm doubly shot. I don't have a hope. I don't have a prayer. So what do we do about that? What did God do? That's a terrible place to be. And I guess everybody that's a Gentile in this room that doesn't know Christ, that's exactly where you are. So what did God do? Verse 13 says, He made you alive together with him. Ephesians 2.5 says the same. But, in God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, our same state, he made us alive together with Christ. You know, we see the reality of our loss and sinful state. We were dead men and women, utterly defeated, utterly dominated by sin, dead, powerless to break the chains of sin that bound us, without hope, without God, without any ability to respond, slaves to our sinful nature, and this is where God found me. And this is where God found you. And what did he do? Did he wait for your good works? Did he ask for some right? It says, no, he just jumped in and he made you alive. Amen. Nothing, no payment. No, no tit for tat. This is by my act alone. So we can't claim, I was searching for God for years, and I finally found him. Are you kidding me? We were dead, not looking for anything like God. God broke into our sinful state and world and made us alive, and we finally said, I want you. I want you. What happened to me? The things I used to hate, man, I love now. What happened? God made us alive. And the key for all of these things, if you look at your Bible, I don't have time to go through them, but every verse gives you the key. In Him. In Him. This life is only available in Him. In Christ. If you don't have Christ, you don't have life. If you don't have Christ, you don't have freedom from your sin. If you don't have Christ, you don't have power in the victory and the triumphs he's given us. In him is our key. We must cling to that key and only that key. It's not my, in fact, I felt pretty weak this morning. And it's not going to be anything I say this morning besides God's word that's going to impact your heart. 
If God doesn't make you alive, in fact, I told the first service, if your unbelieving friend doesn't believe you in 15 minutes, he's not going to believe you in 15 hours. If God doesn't make them alive, all you can do is antagonize them. Turn over the change of the person's heart to Christ. If he makes them alive, you can't stop them. But if he doesn't, you can't convince them. This is why evangelism should be so freeing. It's not on me. I just share, and if God opens their eyes, wham, new birth. If he doesn't, I can't change it. My job is simply to share it. Well, anyway, that wasn't part of the message, but I'll move on. So incredibly, God has removed obstacle number one. It's hard to have a relationship to God when you're dead. He made you and me alive. And it's nothing we did to earn it, no right we did, no performance that we did. He stepped into our casket, as it were, pulled us out and says, you're alive. You'll love me and you'll serve me. And that's a grace of God. Well, two, Christ's total triumph over our debt of sin. Besides being spiritually dead, even if we were made alive, there's something else in the way. We have a record before God. You know, you may not have a record before the state of California or the federal government. You have, may not have, they may not have caught you for evading taxes or whatever you might have done. But before God, nothing escapes his vision. We have a record. And that's what this verse says. I love this. It says, when we were dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of our flesh, he made us alive, having forgiven all our transgressions. You know, forgiveness is a wonderful thing. But I have to tell you, forgiveness from God is not cheap. We read in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Notice it doesn't say he's faithful and merciful. He's faithful and kind. He's just. And how is that justice purchased? By the sacrifice and the death of God's own son. He says, for order for me to forgive these people, I will have to give up my son. And he will have to die in their place. And on that basis, and that basis alone, can I forgive them? Because the debt will have been fully paid. And how many sins did God forgive you? Does anybody know what all means? You know, sometimes we read this wrong. We read this as some, most, the ones before I became a Christian, for sure, but the ones afterward, not so sure. I, I feel like he might think that I'm trampling on the cross of Christ now that I know what it is. You have to understand this verb is in the past. You have been forgiven all your sins. You have, your sins, and God's calendar and God's uh, court have been expunged totally. Even ones you haven't even thought of to do. How is that possible? Because when Christ purchased you, he knew everything about you. He knew every sin you would ever commit, not just the ones before he knew you. And he forgave them, how many? All. All. See, Christ has paid it 
all. All to him I owe. Right? Well, let's move on. It also says that happy is the man who knows that his transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Does knowing you've been forgiven this completely make you happy? It should. You should be dancing. Because it doesn't, it's not the matter that you don't sin. Yes, we feel bad when we sin, and we confess that sin, and our relationship is made right with God. But in God's court, it's all forgiven. That should make you happy. Now, the reason I think it doesn't make you happy is because of this. In Hebrews 8.12, we forget this verse. Quoting Jeremiah, the writer of Hebrews said, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins only a little bit. No more. See, aren't you amazed, and I'm amazed, how many Christians run around remembering what God has forgotten. You carry your sins with you like it's some penance you must do to feel really sorry for it. And when you carry stuff around that God has forgotten, you really are saying, God, you had no right to forget that because I really need to hold on to it. How dare you forget my sins? Are you kidding? We must live in the happiness of the forgiveness that God has given us. Otherwise, it will be an anchor around your ankle in living for Christ. Because you're going to say, oh, I got this thing in the past. I really let them down two years ago. Oh, well, who cares? If you've confessed that sin, Christ has already forgiven that sin, forgotten that sin. God is not holding that against you anymore. The only person holding it against you is Satan and you. And he wants to remind you of it every time he gets. And you have the same right to say, no, you have no right to bring that up. And in fact, when he does bring it up, what should we do with it? We should not play with it. Entertain it. Oh, yeah, you're right. I did do that. Oh, how horrible. I, I'm a worm. How could you ever use me, God? Do you read this? I will remember their sins no more. My mom told me one time, I don't know if anybody's ever repeated a sin more than once. Anybody failed more than once in the same area? I used to feel really ashamed because I, I, when I went to confess to God, I always thought he would say, I don't think you're serious. This is the sixth time you've done that. How could you do that? I mean, I don't think, if you were really sorry, you'd stop, right? And that's how I thought. My mom told me, he says, son, you're not thinking of this right. He says, when you take your sin to God and you've trusted Christ and he's forgiven you, you go back with that same sin. You know what he tells you when you said, God, I did it again. He says, did what again? It's gone. Don't remind God what he's already forgotten and chosen to forget. He's not interested in your opinion of what he should remember. And he said he would not remember your sin anymore. Why do you? It's a boat anchor. It's a negative. It doesn't help us live a godly Christian life. God wants us to let that go. Now, be sincere. Be repentant. Don't let sin interfere with your relationship to God. Confess your sins right away. 
but don't dwell on them like they're some sort of significant fact that can never be overcome. This is why the Apostle Paul always said, forgetting what lies in the past. I don't care if it was good or bad. I press on. We must be people who press on. This is what Christ has bought for us. He has triumphed over our debt of sin. It is gone. How did he do it? He nailed it to the cross. In fact, it says he wiped it away. If you look at the rest of that verse, it says he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. This is a really interesting word. Because this whole verse 14, the certificate of debt, that really meant, I think if I said it right, chirographon. And it really meant autograph. And he said this. It's really simple. There's a signed summary of our sin, our confession of guilt before God. God, these are my sins. They're all here. I'm signing my name, just like an IOU. I, Tim Wallstrom, owe you this sin debt of all these sins. Signed, Tim. When we take our autographed signature of confession before God and trust him to pay it, that's the moment he wipes it out and it says he nails it to the cross and the blood of Christ wipes it out. Wiping it out is like erasing a chalkboard. That's what this word means. It's like wiping it away. And God does not take a picture of it before he wipes it off. You get me? When you bring stuff up again, it's not something God wants to hear. And it's something that will only harm our Christian walk. Well, lastly, he's triumphed over our enemies. In verse 15, we see how he removed the obstacle of our greatest foe and the source of our great temptation, Satan and his demonic host. Verse 15 says, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, the demonic angels' realm, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. He's making one last argument. Church, I know people are going to tempt you to try to rely on angels or to be afraid of Satan. Don't. Not only is he Lord of creation and superior and in charge of all angelic realms by his position of authority as creator, he's defeated all of your foes. He has conquered them. He has vanquished them. They are gone. Their power to rule over you has been destroyed. He paraded them through the streets like the Roman conquerors would. They were chained, they were bound, they were ridiculed and mocked as they were taken through the streets of Rome saying, they are no longer anyone to be feared. This is what he's done to Satan and his minions. This is why we say, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. This is a defeated foe we are looking at. He has already been Conquered. We don't need to do battle with him anymore. We just need to trust in the battle and the victory that Christ has won. You know, I think in Scripture, my personal opinion, I appreciate that, I pre- my personal opinion is, we oftentimes, oh, give me the victory. I think it's more, thanks be to God who has given us the victory. <laughs> Live in the victory he has given you. Do not try to conquer a new battle. Live in the victory Christ has provided. In fact, one of the things he did, and I'll stop there with this particular verse. What did he accomplish when he conquered Satan? One of the key things he accomplished was in Hebrews chapter 2. 
And it says this, through the death of Christ, that he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know, before we knew Christ, all of us were afraid of death. In fact, the movie industry makes a ton of money magnifying the scariness of death. According to this verse, the power of death has been taken out of a defeated foe Satan's hand, and it's in Christ's hand, and it's no longer a threat to us. Death is an opportunity for us. He says what? For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Right? Jesus turned death from a place of fear and darkness into a gateway to glory. We, we don't need to be afraid of it anymore. If we get promoted early, okay. We're not getting, it's not something we ever need to fear. This is why we now have martyrs that said they did not consider their lives worth saving. Why? Because the glory of the cross, the glory of Christ, the glory of his kingdom is far more valuable than my puny life. And who did that? Christ accomplished that at the cross by defeating the powers and the authorities and the dominions and our chief arch enemy, Satan. They are vanquished foes and we need to live in the victory he's provided us. Well, I want to end with this. The world we live in is pretty bleak at times. And I think sometimes we think that the odds look against us. I feel like a weak person because I remember all my failings. I'm afraid of what maybe the world's going to do to me. Do you know no matter what it looks like right now, whether the people in power have an ungodly agenda or not, did you know that it doesn't matter it looks like evil is winning? It doesn't matter if it looks like the odds are so stacked against me. We have read the end of God's book, and we win. I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever uh, found out the score of a game before you ever watched the video you made of it? You had to make sure it was worth your time. Sometimes I won't even watch a game if I know they got blown out. I don't need to see my favorite team get decimated. We have read the end of God's book. He's given you the snapshot that says, by the way, no matter what the score looks like in the middle of the game, don't worry, I've got the victory. We win. You win. Every one of us will win. I just want to say this. You might feel that much is lacking in your life, even though he says you're totally transformed. You've been set free from the power of sin, that Christ has given you new life, He's expunged the record of your sin by wiping it clean by the blood of Christ at the cross. That you've been given triumph. You feel not very triumphal and not very complete. We still cannot look to any other thing, any other person, any other source, not to priests, pastors, counselors, Mary, saints, angels, nothing. Christ and Christ alone will deliver us. So this week, I just hope you can enjoy some of the things Christ has done in your life, believer. I want, brothers and sisters, 
This is not a journey that we should consider grim. This is the journey on which he has put us in a life of triumph, of changed hearts, of ability to say no to stuff that we hate and the ability to say yes to stuff that pleases our God. He has put us in a great position. We just need to live in the victory he's provided. The world will never take away the triumph that Jesus has earned. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that as we hear this, we would live confident. It's almost like the song, Arise, my soul, arise. With confidence I now draw nigh. Why? Because I believe that Jesus wiped my sin away. I believe that he took the penalty for my sin. I believe that he bought me a new relationship. I can walk into his presence now as a son, as a daughter, and say, Father, because of Jesus, I am free. I am yours. And we have a relationship that will last forever. Oh, Father, may we enjoy you today. May we rely on you and you alone. Let us not seek our own ways around or through or behind you. If it looks like we're going through a difficult circumstance right now, we don't need another Savior. We have the best. We have Christ. May you work in every heart today. And Father, for those that are here that may not know this Jesus, but they're you're starting to draw. You're waking them up. They're saying, I hear what you're saying. I want to know more. I need to know more. I need to know this Jesus that loves me so much that he would die for me. Would you please come and see us? Father, help them to come. We thank you for this time. Would you please send us with your presence and a sense of joy and victory that you've purchased. In Jesus' name, amen.